The Appendix N Podcast, Episode 12, Dwellers in the Mirage. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we read and discuss the authors that influenced Gary Gygax, one of the creators of Dungeons & Dragons. In the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax published a list of his favorite fantasy authors, and this list has come to be known simply as Appendix N. Every month on this show we will read a book and talk about it. We will review the story and talk about how it relates to the game being played at your table. If you would like to be a part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of this episode for a list of some upcoming books. Uh, Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. Joining me tonight, now and in perpetuity, uh, I'm proud to announce my my uh, permanent uh, co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. Welcome, Jeff. Hiya. Uh, Jeff has decided that he's going to do uh, all the Appendix N shows with me from now on, forever and ever, uh, for as long as Appendix N shall last. So I greatly appreciate uh, your contribution, Jeff. I am just happy to be involved. Awesome. And joining us as a special guest tonight is uh, previous uh, Tome Show contributor, Jeremiah McCoy. Welcome, Jeremiah. Hi there. How's it going? Uh, it's pretty good, Jeremiah. Uh, for those out there that, that don't know who you are, uh, what do you do and, and uh, what do you play and what do you read? Uh, I have been a gamer so for 33 years. Uh, bought, got my first D&D set when my mom bought me one uh, at the age of nine because she got tired of me getting into hers. Uh, and I've been... You know, playing pretty much every kind of role-playing game since. I worked in the video game industry for a little while. Uh, I read everything from pulp to the latest sci-fi, and I'm a YouTube host. Awesome. Well, I'm sure you'll, you'll have uh, lots of insightful commentary to add to the show. Sure. Awesome. All right. So tonight we're talking about a story from uh, A. a Merritt, um, Merritt is actually called out by uh, Gygax as being being one of one of the most uh, import, in, important influences uh, upon a a D and D like above and and beyond uh, the the others on the appendix and list uh, and he's he's also one of the few authors that we actually have like a list of titles for uh, Creep Shadow Creep Moon Pool and Dwellers in the Mirage. Uh, we previously read uh, the Moon Pool on this show. Uh, I will be doing Creep Shadow Creep eventually tonight. Tonight we are talking about Dwellers in the Mirage. Uh, a. Merritt is is Abraham Merritt. He was born 1884. He died 1943. Uh, Wikipedia names H. Ryder Haggard, Robert W. Chambers, Helena Blavatsky, and Gertrude Barrows Bennett as heavy influences. Uh, he was a major influence on Appendix and authors H.P. Lovecraft and Michael Moorcock and was referenced in the Lensman series by E.E. E. Smith. Uh, he was born in Beverly, New Jersey. He was primarily a journalist uh, in, in his lifetime. 
He was assistant editor of the American Weekly from 1912 to 1937, and then editor until his death in 1943. Uh, his first fantasy story was Through the Dragonglass in 1917. Dwellers in the Mirage was originally serialized in six parts in the magazine Argosy, which is the same magazine that published uh, A Princess of Mars, beginning on January 23rd, 1932. So guys, what did you think of the story? I liked it. I had read, uh, as we were talking about previously before we started recording, I had read The Moon Pool uh, in preparation for this, since I wasn't part of the podcast uh, discussing it. And I found the moon pool to be kind of a slog. There were a lot of really interesting ideas in it, but it was they were presented in a not the uh, not the most exciting plot. By contrast, uh, Dwellers in the Mirage had a really engaging plot. It was a lot uh, more rollicking than I was expecting. Jeremiah, what's your consensus? I uh, I'm, I, I kind of go both ways on this one. I like it um, as a good example of pulp fiction uh i i think one of the reasons why maybe a merit doesn't get talked about as much as opposed to somebody like lovecraft or howard is while he was really good at taking a bunch of pulp uh tropes and influences and combining it into a, a really readable story he doesn't there's nothing stylistic about it to to, to make it uniquely his i guess it's just here's a good pulp story yeah that's that's pretty much what i what i thought of of, of the story the 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 prose is is pretty matter of fact it 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 tells you what you what you need to know i mean this this would would make a good screenplay for movie but like un, unlike uh lovecraft and 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 burroughs and dunsany there's there's no there's no style to it um it's it's very straightforward, and it you can tell it's that he, you know, obviously had people he liked and respected, and he, uh, you know, certainly aped some of their things, which is fine. Uh, all of them did that. It's just you know some of them took it a step further and made it uniquely theirs and gave it a a stamp. And his just sort of is this is the style, this is the genre, and uh, as an example of the genre, it's really good. And yet, and yet, according to uh, everything I've been reading on on Wikipedia, apparently Merritt was was a highly successful and and popular author in his his own day, whereas uh, Lovecraft at at least was was not. Uh, partly because Lovecraft didn't you know uh, promote himself, but um, apparently Merritt Merritt at 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 one time was a household name. Um, Okay. Mainly for his journalism, though. Okay, I, I, okay. All right. So uh, this this story um, deals with uh, we we have two two protagonists. We we have uh, Leif uh, uh, Langdon and his friend Jim. Uh, Leif is this uh, Viking warrior uh, stereotype. He's he's an American, but he's he's of um, you know, uh, Nordic, Nordic ancestry. And Jim is an American Indian. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, Leif has apparently been uh, ostracized by his own family for being tall, blonde, strong, and, and, and good-looking. Uh, when all the rest of them are not so much. Kind of ironic that when he was a baby, they decided to name him Leif then. Yeah. As in Leif Erikson. Yeah, like almost almost as a, as a joke. Uh, it, it, it's interesting also that he is... I, I don't think Merritt necessarily was uh, simpatico with the thinking, but he is absolutely the Nazi ideal. He is the super Aryan throwback to a, uh, you know, a quote unquote greater people that used to be that was blonde, blue eyed and big and strong and somewhat good at violence. Apparently oh, this was, this was a few years before uh, the outbreak of world war two. And I don't, I don't, I don't know how, how widespread um, I don't, I don't, I don't know how, how much we over here knew about uh, Nazi internal philosophy at the, the at at the time, well, there was definitely a a, a um, vein of mysticism uh, talking about a primeval past where the um, Aryan supermen ruled over all that um, at least some Nazis were into, and I think you're right, Jeremiah. I hadn't really put the two and two together, but yeah, he this is drawing from. Uh, the same well as uh, some of the some of that uh, fool society uh, type propaganda yeah. and mysticism. Well, I think the- I think Merritt just seems to like the the Viking stereotype because he he had like a like a Viking character way back in 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 the Moonpool who was not the main character, but he was also this this like rough and tumble but but very honorable guy. Uh, and he he also equally romanticizes the uh, American Indian in 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 Leif's friend uh, Jim. Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. I didn't mean that in a way that to to cast any kind of aspersions on Abraham Merritt. You can be a fan of um, something without necessarily sharing all of the ideological beliefs with other fans of similar things. Sure. He he was uh, he he collected a bunch of occult books, which means and he was very into the occult. Uh, and at the time, one of the biggest things in the occult was theosophy, right? Wh- which the Thule Society and group pulled a lot from. So it it, it sort of it, they're pulling from a similar pool is is where that's at. Now, what is what is theosophy? Mm. Madame um, Blavatsky, yeah, I think you mentioned uh, earlier was this uh, Russian American who. Claimed to have been in touch with the, or the 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 secret ascended masters or something. I forget what the exact term was. Um, I have a copy of the Book of Dizan somewhere in my house. That sounds cool. Yeah, and uh, the uh, uh, they actually revered a couple of fictional novels as actually the true history that the writer somehow tapped into. Uh, one of which is called The Coming Race, which uh, was the first uh, Hollow Earth story. Oh, so it's it's uh, Scientology. They, they they revere fiction as 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 truth. Basically, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, in, uh, but instead of I don't know space aliens or whatever you have in Scientology, it's ancient super Tibetans. That's interesting. Yeah. 
and, and, uh, and and that was basically the plot of 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 the moon pool was that there there was an ancient race in inside the earth that was kind of yeah that was exactly exactly where, yeah exactly the uh the concept which which yeah. later went on to to influence hp uh, lovecraft's mountain of madness which we'll we'll talk about later but we're talking about uh dwellers in the, in the mirage so we've We've got Leif and and his his friend Jim, and they they, they met uh, during uh, World World War One, uh, and Leif is apparently very good with languages because he he picks up uh, Jim's uh, Indian language, and uh, late later on we, we we learned he went with an archaeological expedition to Mongolia and he was able to pick up all sorts of languages over there. So. Uh, uh, Leif and Jim each have uh, Indian names for each other, and and they are the best of of buddies on a on a on a rollicking buddy ad adventure. Uh, and they're they're apparently in in Alaska, ostensibly looking for for gold, but more just to like escape and get away from civilization because they've they've both been scarred by by the war and just uh, bad. Uh, bad things going on with their with their own families. I, I don't remember if 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 Jim had anything going on besides the war, but Leif was definitely just just trying to get like get away from like the people in his, in his family who who didn't really accept him. Yeah, I think so. I, I definitely got the uh, uh, impression that Jim was there to be the sidekick. He's a a, a good sidekick, but they didn't delve too deeply into why he was going, other than he was just there to to help out his buddy. Oh, they're they're inseparable blood brothers, right? Yeah, like I mean, in 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 terms of like, um, merit merit comes comes off a lot less racist and sexist than than a lot of his contemporaries that that we've been reading like compared to Burroughs and Lovecraft I mean he he stereotypes certainly sure. but but he he seems to all to just like accept everyone as 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 being human and and equal and like we'll we'll get into his 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 treatment of women uh later but like he he really seems to be like in infatuated with with ancient call uh blah ancient uh, ancient cultures vikings indians uh and the uh, uh cult apparently like he he was a very knowledgeable uh worldly guy so i i was impressed actually that uh when he's talking about uh you know the cultures in mongolia and the uh, some of the Native American le- uh, legends. He's not far off of real stuff. I mean, you know, he he calls them by their real names. He isn't making up names. Yeah, you know, on that note, this is a little bit of a tangent. But when I was reading the Moon Pool, um, I noticed a lot of little uh, authorial intrusions that were. Uh, basically assertions that whatever outlandish sci-fi concept he had just introduced was actually backed up by somebody's um, research. And I went and checked a couple of these things, and he was actually citing real um, real journals, real articles that were on the topics that he was talking about. 
I mean, you know, instead of being actually about giant frog people, it was about the reproductive cycle of a particular kind of frog. But um, yeah, and, there, was a, he, there was a grounding there that I was uh, surprised by. He was pretty well-traveled uh, by comparison to some of the other authors, too. So, you know, he it's entirely possible a lot of his knowledge of some of these places was firsthand. Okay, so... Um, getting to Mongolia, so uh, Leif, Leif, and Jim are are camped out in in Alaska, and and we're we're no sooner in, introduced to them than um, we 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 start to hear hear voices on 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 the wind. Uh, Jim is 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 creeped out because he thinks he hears his ancestors talking to him. And we learn that that Leif is keeping something on on a on a string uh, around his neck, uh, and and Jim finally finally gets gets Leif to tell uh, his his backstory about about why he's even coming here in the in the first place, and uh, Leif talks about how he went to Mongolia after the war, um, with with an archaeological expedition. And this, the, it 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 happens that this one very remote, reclusive tribe, called, I uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this this right, the the Uyghurs. Yeah, that's right. Okay, the the Uyghurs seem to think that Leif is the reincarnation of their long dead king. They they somehow have have a have a prophecy that a a tall white man. With blonde hair and and Nordic features, uh, is is their is their long lost king, and they surround his expedition, and they, you know, uh, pointedly re- request at at spear point that they that they come with him, and uh, Leif sort of sort of is 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 introduced to uh, this this cult that that worships this this black squid thing which is which they call uh, the Kraken um, or and it's it's its name is also Kalkru and he's he's sort of he's like as 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 part of his his right of being uh, inaugurated you know, welcome, welcome back, long lost king. They they dress him in these robes and they, and they give him a ring and they teach him this ceremony and they kind of shove him in, into a chamber where there's this naked pregnant girl underneath like a statue of a, a tentacle, and they 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 make him go through the ritual that they that they've just taught him, and the ritual actually makes the tentacle come to life and and summons this this Kalkru, uh, and and. Calcru like eats or dis- disintegrates or or kills this this girl, uh, whereupon Leif uh, is is revolted and he he just kind of like snaps out of whatever like hypnotism he was he was under, and he he just he just kind of bolts for it, but and so and so he's 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 been he's been haunted by by the death of this of of, of this girl, he's he's kept the ring around his his neck as as kind of an of an of an albatross. But but also he's distressed because ever ever since then or even even right before it it happened he was starting to like remember actually being this 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 king this ancient king yeah the ceremony had some familiarity to him 
the place that he was at, the things there were things that he recognized. It's it tied into that whole concept of race memory. And I think like right right before it it happens, he's he's with the archaeologists and they're they're saying something about how it was believed that the that the Norse people had had emigrated to, you know, Scandinavia where they where they currently live from Central Asia where the where the Mongols are now. So it's it's plausible that that the that that the brown skinned, you know, Mongols could could have had white skinned you know, Nordic-looking looking ancestors, uh, and so that's that's sort of the sort of the basis for for all of this. It is a little bit problematic uh, from a sort of cultural sensitivity standpoint, but you know, o- overall, he's at least trying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to pretty much anything from. Uh, uh, this this uh, any any <clears throat> depending on how far back you go, which may not be that far back at all, you really have to be aware that there's always going to be something problematic in your fantasy. Sure, I, 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 he he doesn't even even seem to be saying that that like the the white people were better than than the brown people. He's he's still, he's still been trying 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 to pre- present this as a as a fact of history, right? Like like this is this is anthropology or or something. Um, yeah, I mean, it's as inherently racist things go. It's extremely mild. It's yes. <laughs> I I and I will add that there is actually some anthropological evidence to indicate that the European speaking uh, peoples uh, probably did immigrate from Asia, or to a certain extent. So he's not like completely flapping his arms um it's just the the real problematic element is this you know asian culture is somehow waiting for this you know aryan superman to come and save them i'm 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 immediately thinking of the of the aztecs who when when cortez showed up they they thought he was supposedly they they thought he was quetzalcoatl because they apparently had had a myth about a white-skinned guy you know, showing showing up and being their their deity. So, I mean, this this doesn't seem that far fetched to me, at least in in the context of a of a of a fantasy story. Sure, sure. Uh, and it should be said that the Uyghurs, you know, they still exist actually, and actually kind of are problematic in China right now. But uh, they, uh, it, it's not like they wouldn't have seen white people before. <laughs> um. It's just one of those. Okay, you accept it, move on. It's the era. Try not to dwell on it too much. I guess. Yeah, I guess. All right. So, um, so that's 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 kind of of of, of the of, of our our introduction to uh, uh, Calcru the Kraken, who is totally not uh, Cthulhu. Uh, the Call of Cthulhu was. <laughs> was actually published in 1928 and this was published in in 1932 uh, and and I, I did I did actually find an article in, in a blog called uh, skulls in the stars which 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 I'm I'm going going to link to 
uh, Merritt and and Lovecraft did actually meet each other, and 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 Merritt told Lovecraft he was a big fan of of, of Lovecraft's work, and Lovecraft was a big fan of Merritt's work. So, um, so what you're saying is that um, Calcrew is not a completely accidental uh, in its similarities to Cthulhu. Uh, yeah, like I mean, I mean, going going into this, like I, I I didn't know if they had actually like met each other, if if Merritt had any knowledge of Lovecraft, because Lovecraft was relatively obscure during his his own lifetime. So I was like, is this is this is this an accident? Is this just is this just uh, coincidence? But it, it turns out they they did actually meet each other, and they were familiar with each other's words. So this 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 Calcrew could definitely be an an homage to. Uh, Cthulhu. I actually find that a little disappointing because when I was reading this, I must have misread it. I thought I read that this The Dwellers in the Mirage was published in 1922 instead of 1932, and so I thought it actually predated uh, The Call of Cthulhu, and I'm a little sad to discover that it does not, because I thought that was cool. Well, it, in well, a lot of the pulp writers knew each other. Oh, they, yeah. They had correspondent circles, and they they ran into each other every once in a while. So, and, they were, and they're, they're drawing from a lot of the same sources. Yeah, they were drawing from a lot of the same sources. And also, if you're a writer and you see this guy is actually people like his stuff, you might go and look and see what he's doing right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's it's perfectly reasonable for it. Yeah, there's there's no sense in which I'm trying to cast aspersions. Once again, let me say, there's no sense in which I'm trying to cast aspersions on uh, a merit. Okay. No. You, yeah. <laughs> would you Would you like to say it a third time? I, you know, I'm going to save that for later okay. in the podcast because okay. you know, we'll need it later. All right. So. Um, all right. So. Then, then once once we're we're sort of past this this flashback uh, introduction, uh, then then we 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 get to the actual meat of the story, and we and we learn about the mirage, uh, and the dwellers th- therein. So uh, Leif and Jim are are headed north, following uh, this voice that they hear or think that they hear on on the wind. Leif Leif thinks it's it's Calcru, uh, you know, uh, calling him. And they 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 happen upon this uh, uh, mountain valley, and and when when first they look down into it, it, it seems like all all barren and flat, and not really that that deep. But they they eventually figure out that the valley floor that they're seeing is actually a mirage. Um, it's a it's a it's some trick of the light caused by. Uh, physics and and heat rising and this, this is the part where I get I get all confused, but they, they actually go go below what what they see as as the valley floor and and enter this sort of tropical paradise that's in the middle of, of Alaska that's sort of like this this land out of out of time land of land of, of the of the lost kind of kind of deal, and they they find uh, little people and they find. Uh, wolf warrior women and all sorts of things yeah i try i sort of envisioned the the mirage itself as being sort of a like a fog bank or cloud that viewed from above just happens to look like a dry lake bed 
Yeah, that's that was basically my 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 impression as well. Um, uh, uh, apparently, uh, mirages like this are like actually a natural phenomenon. Uh, I don't I don't know that they would ever manifest to such an extent as you would mistake an entire uh, valley for for not being there. Um, I can imagine looking down from a snowy mountaintop and seeing a valley full of fog and thinking that I'm seeing a much smaller valley full of snow or covered by snow. I can I can imagine that at least. Right. Yeah. I I I my impression of how mirages work. This didn't sound like how mirages work, but I didn't care. It it worked for this context. Yeah, I'm willing to willing to go with it for purposes of this of the story. All yeah. Right. So, um, Leif, Leif first like discovers about the the mirage when when he accidentally drops his his backpack and it, it drops through what he thought was the was the valley floor, uh, and and they they make their their way down in, in, into this jungle, and uh, the first thing 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 they do is <coughs> is they uh, they they find uh, two of these uh, little people who were sort of uh, tied up. And being sacrificed to these uh, uh, plant monsters, and uh, they they rescue them, and they uh, the the little people are eternally grateful. Um, there's a man and a woman, and they're both naked, and this is the first of a bunch of descriptions of women who are either naked or almost naked. Right. Uh, their their names are I think like Sri and Sra. Um, they're 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 these these golden skinned uh, long haired uh, pygmies, um, and all 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 throughout like the 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 first couple of chapters where where he was introducing the the valley setup. I like I was reminded again of the setup in in the Moon Pool where you had little people and a couple big people that ruled over them and you had one woman who was bad and one woman who was good and you, yeah it's definitely a parallel that you see here with the bad woman and the good woman yeah so um i forget um what the little people call themselves uh I, but the 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 other people living in the valley call them the the Rilia. Yeah. Or is is that something something that Jim called them? Because because Jim later hypothesizes that they're creatures from some American Indian legend. Jim calls them the I happen to be looking at this right here the Yunwe Sundi, the little people. Right. Oh, okay. Um, and but the 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 other people that are living in the in in, in the valley, the big people, call them the the Rilia with like three R's. Yeah, like Rilai. Right, which which is is again the, the name of the place where Cthulhu lives. So, yeah. uh, except now it's the name of 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 Munchkins. Yeah, I don't know that there's necessarily a one to one correlation right there. No, I don't think. No, who 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 knows? There's only a certain number of ways you can make syllables so that they sound like crazy exotic words. Right. So um, apparently the the setup here is is that the the little people live on one side of of the river. With a a normal sized woman whom they call uh, uh, Evilly, and she's she, she's the good woman, and uh, I I can't remember is is she brown skinned or or white skinned? She's 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 definitely dark dark haired. 
She's dark haired, and I, I'm ninety percent sure she's uh, light skinned. Okay, and then on the other side of the of the river, you you have again humans, who who are are mostly women and mostly naked and mostly have red hair, uh, and and they worship uh, Kelkru. And I, I think they, they, they even call call themselves the the Aegir, which, which is is clearly meant to sound like Aesir, the the, the, yeah. Norse, the Norse word for their Norse gods. Right, right. The, the Norse the Norse gods. Yeah, and the uh, uh, and they're split up into two groups: the followers of Kelkru, which are Karak, and um, I forget what the name of the other town was. Cirque. Cirque. Yeah, there's yeah. there's 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 a, there's the city of of Karak and and those who run away from Karak because they don't want to be sacrificed to uh, Kalkru, they they kind of hold themselves up in the in the castle of Cirque. And they're all Vikings. Right. They are they are all Vikings, and most of them are are women. So there's, Valkyries. Right. Yeah. And there's uh, the first of these women that. Uh, that he meets is the most important one, the the evil woman, the counterpoint to Evilly the Good Woman, uh, Lure, the Wolf Woman. Right, and I, I mean this this character is is just is just awesome. I mean, despite being like standard uh, fantasy, you know, um, uh, 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 cheesecake. I I think Lur like executes herself fairly well in this in this novel. Like she she's her her own character with with her her own thoughts and desires and and goals and and yes she's she's there to to be sexy and she's she's topless when we when we first meet her. But I mean c- compared to uh uh you know Deja Thoris and and, and most of the women in. Burroughs novels, she she definitely at least has an identity. Yeah, you could make lure a man take out the the sexiness, and it would be like ninety percent the same character, and the plot would work. You know, ninety percent of the plot would work just just fine. Yeah, uh, the fact that she's a woman is not completely incidental, but it's not. Yeah, it's it's very different from Deja Thoris. I, I, I do get the impression that, uh, to a certain extent, uh, and based on what I can read of Merritt so far, is probably a deliberate choice of providing two different female, more or less love interests that represent two different versions of, of uh, fantasies that men might have. One that is very um, submissive and sort of yielding, and another that is super strong-willed and... and uh, uh, in, in need of, you know, a strong hand, whatever. Sure, Meryl and Isabella in Dragon Age 2. Yeah, pretty much. And that reference went over my head because I'm, I'm still playing Dragon Age 1. Uh, but anyways, so, uh, yeah, I mean, this 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 whole setup is is still a a male fantasy. It's 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 very much like. Um, uh, 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 Pellucidar, where you know the man from outside shows up and he's got all the answers to uh, all all the problems. Although Leif Leif isn't isn't quite the perfect hero that uh, David David Innes was, and 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 there's of course you know naked or half naked women running around everywhere. Uh, but I I like I I could see being a a a female reader and still 
you know, being being able to get some enjoyment out of this. If you were willing to work past the all of the the pretty naked ladies in their scanty costumes, then absolutely. There, there is actually a female character I actually really liked out of the story, which was Dara. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I love Dara. Dara is awesome. I was really hoping that Dara didn't die, and she didn't die. So I was yeah I was, yeah. I, 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 I kind of wanted him to leave Eva Lee behind, go out with Dara, and then they go off and have adventures together later. Because she was awesome. <laughs> um, oh, that's, that's, that's just because he, he, she wasn't trying to sleep with him. But um, She had more to do besides sleep with him. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, so, so, so did Lur. I mean, so did, sure, so so did, did Lur. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure you could say the same thing about Eva Lee. Um, well, she you was, have you have well you have uh, Jim and Leaf. They meet the little people. They meet Evilly, and then the little people are uh, really eager to fix Jim up with Evilly. Not uh, sorry, not Jim. Fix Leaf up with Evilly. Yeah, because because they that's, like that's everyone in, the, in, in this valley apparently has a prophecy about about Leaf uh, showing up and being uh, Dwayanu, which is, is the first time we've mentioned that name. Um, so apparently, apparently, Leif is the reincarnation of this ancient king, uh, Dwayanu. Um, and he he spends like the first half of his time in in the valley with the with the little people, and at and he he gets married or sort of married to uh, Evely, and then then they they all take him to this to this bridge. Uh, to, I, I'm not sure what he's supposed, supposed to do there to to look across the bridge and talk to uh, Lur and and Tibber and 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 the rest of the of the of the Ager, and Leif is sort of like possessed at at at, at this at, at this moment by his ancient self because like Dwayanu has been buried inside of him this entire time and like we've seen it it manifest in in bits and pieces. Uh, but before this point, but suddenly at this moment, standing on the on this on this broken bridge with a raging river uh, between them, Leif decides to say, "Yes, I am Dwayanu," and he he holds up the ring that he got from the from 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 the Uyghurs, uh, and he says some some pretty like strong arm stuff that sounds really scary to the little people. Uh, and so they hurl him into into the river, before he has any idea what's what's going on, and he ends up captured by the the ager and and playing as Dwayanu for most of the rest of of the book. And Dwayanu is very Conan esque in his way of dealing with everybody. Very much so. And as Dwayanu, Leaf forgets uh, basically that the outside world exists. He, he sort of remembers that it exists. He definitely forgets that Jim is in the valley with him, and he totally forgets that there is such a woman as Evely. Yeah. So, so I- he's, he's focused on the uh, Azure and Lure and um, the whole thing with, uh, with the Cthulhu uh, analog. Yes, yeah, so, I mean this. This is, is one of the most fascinating things I find about about the story because because uh, un, unlike the the perfect two fisted heroes that we've been pre- presented with by um, uh, uh, Burroughs, uh, Leif 
actually has like 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 an evil you know per- perhaps it's the it's the reincarnation of of this of this evil king in in inside of him and and we're never actually sure like what is what is actually going on i mean merit keeps trying to explain things with with science but we're 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 never totally satisfied that that there's absolutely no no magic yeah it's it's really easy to look at the leaf duenu thing and say that you know uh Duenu is Leaf is Duenu reincarnated, or that Duenu is is latent within Leaf, and this ancient spirit is come forth, or what have you. But Merritt tries real hard, I think, to be cagey about it, to say, you know, maybe this is just Leaf being a dick. Uh, maybe this is him acting out in ways that he isn't consciously aware that he wants to. It's also. Uh, kind of ties into that theosophy thing we were talking about earlier. There is a whole section of that sort of mysticism about connecting to your ancient racial memories. And, you know, this is very much in that vein of, you know, he's connecting to this ancient memory of an ancestor. And I can, I can see this, this whole Leif Dwayanu thing as, as like a, a conflict between, uh, the 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 pull of the of the of the fantasy that that we all all enjoy versus the uh, re- reality that that we all must must live in. I mean, I mean, who who wouldn't like to to cast their morals aside and just be 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 powerful and be confident in whatever you you do and be able to to to, to do and take. You know what, whatever you you want, without being tied down by by morals, but ruling ruling over a society of worshipful uh, warrior uh, servants who are just coincidentally eighty five percent scantily clad women. And, and and this is is the fantasy that we that almost all of us engage in when we play RPGs, video games, whatever. You know whether even if you're if you're if you're not. If you're if you're not a a white male, you know you there you you still have an unequivalent uh, power fantasy of, of of just you know ruling over people, being able to do what what you want versus being constricted by uh, you know your morality. Your, right, exactly. And yeah, we morality all know that, just not applying to you. And we all know that guy at the table who. You know, some of us will will try and play the lawful good guy, and you know, no, we can't do this thing or that thing because it's, it you know, doesn't make any kind of moral sense, and there's no reason we, why I would do that. And then there's that guy at the table who's like, whatever, man, as long as I get, you know, my character gets laid, gets gold, and gets cool stuff, I don't care. We all know that guy. <laughs> yeah. So and and uh, that to a certain extent, that's Duanyu. He he's, you know, he's not necessarily evil. He just doesn't. He, he he doesn't have the restrictions. He wants to enjoy his life. He's amoral rather than immoral. Right. And it, and but he's not evil. He's no. he's he's uh, he's uh, in a place very much like Conan in, in the Conan stories, where his more his moral compass is not the same as everybody else's. Uh, it doesn't pull as strongly on him. All he really cares about is getting what he's paid to do. But there are limits. You begin to see those limits. 
you know, as, as he goes along. Yeah, I think that there's really only one character in this, uh, this story that I would really describe as uh, recognizably evil as opposed to just acting out of amoral self-interest. And, and that's uh, Tibber? Uh, not no, not Tibber oh, okay. actually, uh, because Tibber for for his faults, I don't think that he's any worse a person than uh, Duenu is. He's just not quite as strong and not quite as badass. Uh, I'm actually thinking about the uh, the priest whose name I can't recall. Uh, Yodin. Yes, Yodin, who is the the other character that we have not actually. Uh, described. Well, he's yes. he's he's not in the story for uh, very very long. Uh, all right. So what 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 happens is uh, Leif Leif gets gets taken into custody by the by the Karak people, and and he's fully embraced the Dwayanu personality and, and forgotten that he ever was Leif uh, Leif Langdon, and kind of like the little people. Lur and Tibber and Yodin want to put him through all, all these tests to see if he really is uh, Dwayanu, and and there's this power there's this power struggle within the uh, you know Ager culture. You know some of them don't really want Dwy- Dwayanu to come back, or if they do, they want to be you know on the on the winning side of whatever conflict is coming. But it 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 all uh, culminates with. Leif slash Dwayanu doing doing the same ritual that that he did back in Mongolia, and lo and behold, he once again summons uh, Kalkru, and this time it's twelve uh, naked pregnant girls uh, that get uh, uh, sacrificed, <coughs> and the and the the tentacle is slowly coming for him. And he he looks over his shoulder and, and sees uh, Yodin, the the high priest, sort of controlling the tentacle, and he sort of shifts that control, and 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 makes the tentacle go after Yodin. Or I, I think he he grabs Yodin, sort of throws him yeah. throws him to the tentacle is how I understood it. Yeah, he 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 tends to like pick people and wolves up and throw them at at other people and and wolves in this story. He's he he's very much like Hulk Hogan, like big strong wrestler guy, uh, and yet he still does actually switch over to taking over the spell too. So he 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 is not just I'm a big muscle guy and I'm going to throw it at the tentacle. He throws him at the tentacle and then finishes the spell that the priest was casting and just directs it at the priest. Yeah. Yes, that's true. So so Yodin is is in the story for all of about a chapter and a half, maybe. Um. And, and and from from then on, it's 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 Dwayanu and Tibber and Lur, kind of scheming against each other to see like who's going to be the ultimate badass ruler of of the Ager. Uh, Lur Lur takes him to her like va- vacation house by the by the Lake of Ghosts, uh, where where they 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 have their their big lovey dovey scene, uh, and. They they plot how they're like first they're they're gonna sack Cirque, which I I just liked saying that uh, they're they're gonna take the castle of Cirque where all the people who are rightfully afraid of this giant squid god have have, have, have been <coughs> fleeing, uh, and then once once that is done they're gonna bump off uh, Tibber and at 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 least Lur thinks that she's gonna rule uh, Carrick at. Uh, Dwayanu's side, 
Which seems like a pretty uh, pretty good plan, really. Yeah. If you look at it. And it's 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 sort of here that that we learn. We we learn more more about Lur and 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 what she she really wants because she like she likes her life as it is. Like yeah, this is this is why I say that Yodin is recognizably evil, but I don't want to say that about Tibur or Lur. Yodin is presented as the the guy who has been actively promoting the the lie that there is no life on earth outside the valley that all else has been consumed by Calcrew and that um Calcrew must be appeased lest Calcrew consume everybody in the valley uh Lure and Tibur are not they're not actively participating in that uh, i think both of them are it's established a uh, doubt the veracity of it um, I think at one point, Lure actually asserts that she's seen stars. Yeah. Um, so she, it, she's aware that there's a world outside the valley. She, she just doesn't want, want to go there. Like, she, she views Calcrew as a useful tool for, for keeping people in, in line because her, her, her deal is that she likes where, where she is. She likes life the way it is. Like, she doesn't want something upsetting her, her worldview. I, she's, I think a, that, she's a sympathetic character in the broadest sense of sympathetic. I, I would say that I would place Lur in the category of being evil in that she is willing uh, to sacrifice innocent people to maintain her comfort. Yeah. That's a fair point. And as I say that, I realize that my um, yeah. little ethical framework is kind of flawed, which is why this is a podcast about um, pulp fantasy and not a podcast about moral philosophy. True. But I, I still think like she's a she's a fast she's a fast a fascinating character and like you could you could adapt this story to a modern audience with with little difficulty like I think I think you could you can make this story appealing to to women and modern audiences and you and you wouldn't have as far to go you 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 wouldn't have as much cleanup to do as you would with Burroughs. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that is the point that that I am am trying to make with with uh, sure. her, but I mean, like like you said, uh, Jeff. I mean, there's there's also uh, Leif's female lieutenants, uh, uh, Dara and uh, Naral is is the other Narla? one. Was it Narla? I think it's Narla. So it's Naral. I thought. Yeah, Naral. Naral. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they are awesome <laughs> because mm-hmm. a they don't exist to be romantic interests. B they're every bit as badass as uh, the people around them, and C they have agendas and lives beyond just being scenery. Yeah, I uh, agree. I agree completely. I mean, like there's there's also the scene um, when the, when they're uh, in invading. Uh, uh, Calcru, um, Leif, Leif gets this team of like uh, women that that he he paints up like green green and black and and has them go on this on this daring mission to like uh, climb this very slippery ivy and 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 scale across this you know little 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 ledge and like two thirds of them die. 
and like it's it's this very like like badass like noble like like these these are like are like marines that actually that scene felt the most like a D story to me that portion the cirque in uh invasion felt the most like okay this is i can see where dnd com- is mm. drawing on here well, especially like like the like the story goes that like uh, uh, Gygax and and Arneson were were trying to make a war scenario about infiltrating a a castle, right? That like that's how D and D started. Like you were going through tunnels underneath this castle, which became the 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 dungeon. And like yeah, I mean I could I could definitely see like an, an early first edition party, because in in first ed- edition you had tons of hirelings. And, and rather than go into the dungeon yourself, you sent your hirelings in to find all, all the traps for you. <laughs> Not always, but that that was certainly a a, a solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but yeah, it, the 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 fact that he he, he sent sent the man, and it's a very tactical thinking. Uh, there's a definitely some. Indication that uh, the historical problems of, of getting into uh, castles was considered by the writer. He had the, the the heroic moments. You have the sword fights and everything that come afterwards. The arrows and flying and it feels like a fantasy battle. Uh, and yeah, the taking of Cirque from the beginning of the you know climb up the rocks with the rope bridge to the betrayal and everything that goes on during that is uh very much a i could see this as a D adventure totally yeah i hadn't thought about it in those terms but it makes a tremendous amount of sense and so they're they're in cirque and they're they're killing people left and right excuse me they're they're killing people left and right and finally um leif uh meets up with jim and and Evely. and we we had learned earlier uh, that someone had sent a message to to the little people, saying that uh, Leif was only faking. Uh, it 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 was it was all a ploy to to help out the little people somehow, and it it wasn't Leif who sent that message because he was totally seized by Dwayanu the entire time. He was he was not he was he was not faking, mm-hmm. as as far as 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 we know. But seeing Jim and Evelie standing there just kind of like shocks him out of it, and like almost immediately, uh, Evelie is is captured and taken off, and Jim is 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 cut down, and and this just this just brings back Leif fully, and he he kills whoever is standing over over Jim and they they have this this touching death scene and and Jim's final words are save Evely. It it's it's not your fault. I I forgive you. Save Evely. Yeah, he takes down the backbreaker by breaking his back. I I thought that was nice. Yeah, one of the uh one of the other um villains. Yeah, we haven't we haven't really talked about about Tibber and and his men, but they're they're really just like pe- people to fight. Yes. Mm-hmm. Insert thugs here. Right. Name thug one. Name thug two. Yeah. I just think Tibber is a funny name because I just, I just want to say Tibber, Tibber. Yeah. Tibber. Yeah. Tibber is doesn't really seem all that different from Duenu. 
really. No, no he's... He, he's he's basically evil Thor. Like he's he's got he's he's got a hammer. He hits people with it, and that's that's about all there is to know about Tibber. Yeah, but you could say the same thing about Duena. Yes, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Jim's death is I, something that I did not like uh, so much because it do, it does a thing that I always hate when I see it in really anything, which is the supporting character dying and their last words being like, you, main character, learn a lesson from my death. Learn a lesson from my death, main character. My death is completely subservient to you and your personal story arc. Because i got to tell you, if I'm ever in a situation where I'm dying, I'm not going to be saying, uh, Jeff, Jeff Wynn, learn a lesson from my death. I'm going to be saying, uh, Jeff Wynn, tell my wife I love her. Uh, I'm going to be saying something along the lines of, wait, no, hold on. I, I can't be dead not yet. to die. Yeah. Yeah, can I... Can, can I not die well, now? Jeff, you're you're not my my blood brother, and also I don't I don't think Jim had a wife, so your your <laughs> argument is is totally invalid. Fair uh, points, fair, fair points. points. Yeah. But then then so he he carries off his Indian uh, blood brother and gives him a Viking funeral with with full honors, uh, burns him on a pyre surrounded by tapestries and shields and weapons and things, um, and. He he proceeds to uh, kill Tibber, uh, take uh, Evely and Lur back to back to Carrick, uh, and uh, eventually he he decides that um, this this has to come to to an end. I, I I can't stay here and rule over these people. This is not where where I belong. I have to destroy. Calcru, uh, and then I have to get out of her, out of here. And if I can bring Everly with me, great. If not, fine. But I, I can't stay here. And so he, there's, there's a couple tense scenes with, with, with Lur, and and Everly. He's, he's trying to convince Everly that it's like this isn't his fault. He's, he's, he's really a, a good guy. There's, there's Lur trying to figure out. Where is where is all of this going? How is all of this going to end? And and where's my place gonna gonna be in it? And and ultimately she ends up stealing uh, the ring and trying to summon Kalkru herself because if if she's not gonna have a secure place at Dwayanu's side, she, she wants to rule herself. Like she she does not want to give up the 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 valley and 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 Kalkru and the life that 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 she knows and she's willing to do anything to see that end. Also it's mentioned I think way back before uh, Leif Esduenu kills Yoden the high priest that according to the tenets of the Kalkru religion if a man summons Kalkru, Kalkru is just going to consume sacrifices and then leave but if a woman summons Kalkru, then Kalkru is going to never leave and just stick around forever um Constantly consuming things and destroying stuff. Yeah, Lur, which is why uh, the priests have to be men. Right, Lur, Lur says that during one of her last conversations with with Leif, and we, we never find out if that's actually true or not. Uh, I mean, at, at least at the end, Leif seems to be of the conviction that Calcru uh, is, is is not a a a creature, but but possibly like a a race or like a manifestation of some distant civilization or even even a natural phenomenon that some ancient scientists figured out how to how to conjure 
He doesn't know what it is, but he's pretty sure it's not literally a giant squid that is sitting around somewhere waiting to be summoned so that it can stick its head out through a magic portal and consume a sacrifice and then pull its head back through. Right. Also, Whatever it is, not it's not god. that. It, it's yeah. also not a god. He, he, he becomes very clear on this point. It's like, this is just a thing that exists in those spaces that Einstein talked about being beyond space and time. And it's, it's not inherently worthy of worship. Yeah. And, and it's, that, it's, that, right. it's, it's very scary and we, we, we clearly don't understand it, but it's, it's not the enemy of life. It's, it's, it's not, it's not entropy personified. Um, mm. And so he, he ends up smashing the, the giant yellow circle that, that, that Calcru uh, comes through. He, he smashes it with, with, with the, with the gi- giant hammer uh, you know, ending Calcru's presence in this valley forever. Uh, he he ends up. Well, he he doesn't kill Lur. It's it's one of one of his uh, little people who who saves him at 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 the last moment by by Sri. driving his spear. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, Sri. Uh, and he and Evelie first they they flee to. Uh, Lur's uh, 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 country home, and uh, Dara is with him. You know, loyal, loyal first officer to to the end. Uh, uh, they they make it out of the valley, Leif and 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 Evely, and as as far as we know, they 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 make it back to civilization and and live happily ever after. But he. You know, for for the rest of his his life, Leif will always think of Lur, and and the and the fantasy life that he that he could have had. Yeah. Now, Jeremiah, I have a question for you. You say that you've read uh, a lot of pulp fiction. Sure. Reading the Dwellers in the Mirage, it seems to me that Leif's decision to leave the valley with Evely mm-hmm. is kind of unmotivated. He seems to fit very well into the society there, um, either as Duenu or as Leaf. He, it's established that he doesn't have anything really tying him to the modern world, which is why he was trudging across Alaska in the first place. Yeah. And um, so my, my guess is that the reason that Merritt had Leaf leave the valley at the end was no more and no less than it's a genre convention um, that you have the hero go to the weird place and then come back after. That is certainly a genre convention. Uh, And I could also see an argument being made that uh, he had already established that he wanted to make some characters that he wanted to reuse. He might have thought he might uh, reuse that character again. Mm. Um, so that's also a possibility. It's something that happens with a lot of pulp stories. Uh, I mean, the whole secret Valley thing, um, uh, you know, the Burroughs did something like it. Uh, Conan Doyle did something like it. Um, uh, Edward Litton, uh, did something like it. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a common, tro- the whole sort of common trope and the common trope is they go to the place a bunch of people die, and maybe one or two people make it out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to a certain extent, that's what happens. Yeah, Jim doesn't make it home. Yeah. Um, I, I, he definitely is, is sort of pulling on a lot of different 
tropes there uh, to sort of make this hybrid story, which actually is why why I like it, actually, is he takes a couple of different things uh, from different ideas and, and sort of puts them together to make his own story um, that is very much this is that genre. Uh, because he also, you know, not only does he have that secret world thing going, but the hero is very much like, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of Doc Savage. Uh, yeah. A little bit, yeah. Um, the, the sort of uh, golden Superman character who's super smart and super uh, strong and tough and everything beyond that of most normal people, but is also noble and, and strong of mind and things like that. Uh, this could be seen as very much like that character, who's a, a, a classic pulp character. Um, and, and I there were just so many little elements that were like, you know, this is very much like a Lovecraft story over here, and this is, you know, you, you could see some uh, elements of Dunsinay in there, and yeah, it, it, it worked. Mm-hmm. And I would I would contrast it with the, I mean, we I, I've, I've read comparatively little Sword and Planet fiction compared to uh, Jer- Jeremiah, but all of all of the Burroughs stuff that we've done on on this show, the hero, I mean, except for a Princess of Mars, the, the very the very first story, the 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 hero ends up going back and being the ruler of the civilization, and even even with uh, Tarzan, well, Tarzan he he starts out as king of the apes and then then discovers man later, but um, yeah. I, I was thinking more on the lines of, uh, uh, was it uh, Land Before Time or Land lo- Lost Before Time or something like that, and uh, and the, the Lost the, World, right? The Lost World. I mean, you would. I mean, you you clearly have more knowledge of the of the genre than mm-hmm. than I have. I really know only the books that I've that I've read and reviewed uh, on this show, and that's that's why I'm why I'm I'm doing the show in the in the in the first place. So sure. Uh, so 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 you're you're saying that. That 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 the hero goes back to, to civilization is the is the usual ending for this for this type type of thing. Sure, and and you've seen th- there's been a uh, a few movies based on the the same basic thing. Uh, uh, oh, Alan Quartermain is another good example. He finds lost civilizations and then comes back mm-hmm. uh, over and over again. Um, but uh, you know, uh, in uh, uh, the 1930s, there was a movie about a group of people I can't remember the name of it now about a group of people who basically find Shambhala in the Lost Mountains and they they ultimately decide they can't stay there beyond this horizon yes um and you know it, it it's a, a a common enough trope that it it's not a, unusual that he went that direction i could see arguments for why he wouldn't want to stay there in a logical sense like but the, he doesn't enumerate them and that's Maybe a problem, and but I, I think could... I think Leif would have an easier time staying in in the valley than Evely would have adjusting to a world with you know telephones and cars and tax returns and a lot less oxygen. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I I that that particular decision made no sense to me. I was like, you want to take a girl who's lived in a place of pure oxygen for most of her life and take her to our world 
Yeah, a woman who is a woman who has not seen uh, the sun and stars and is likely to be kind of freaked out by them because I know yeah. I would be under the circumstances. Yeah, uh, the, well, I would say the sun and stars are worth seeing. Well, <laughs> I mean, they, they are, it, but no, that I mean, just the health risk alone would make it a really bad idea to take her out of there. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's a decision that seems kind of tacked on uh, compared to the rest of the ending. I, I could sort of see the argument of him going, you know, being here is dangerous for me because it brings on Duanyu, and there are est- elements of Duanyu I don't like about myself. So I want to go someplace that doesn't remind me of it. And, and I could, just, just being, I could see that. Just being king anywhere is probably the most dangerous profession you could you could be in. I mean, nobody wants to kill just just a, <laughs> a, a, a normal guy, but everybody wants to kill to kill the king. Sure, uh, uh, especially when you're living in a world that is, you know, by this axe do I rule. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it, it it definitely is a genre convention. I could see the logical explanation for him wanting to leave. I had more of a problem with him taking Evely because I was like, that's that's not something that you can hand wave away. That would probably kill this girl. Well, I mean, we're told specifically that it doesn't, you know, that they win the long, hard fight for Evelie's life. Right. He, but, he, um, he teaches still, her, it's, he it's teaches her how, to, how to breathe. He, he gets her slowly acclimated. Yeah. By taking her out in the mountains Just, of Alaska. It's, a, it's an odd way to, to, end the, uh, to end the story. Yeah, if, if if Merritt hadn't even like mentioned like like the like the air and the and the breathing problems, like I I think most readers would have just not even thought of, thought about it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah absolutely. I, it, it's the fact that he did mention it and made a point of it that bugged me. Um, because because he makes a point of it, taking her out makes no sense. Yeah. Other than that, I could you know like all right, clearly she is a transplant here. She's not one of the Asia. Uh, she is not one of the little people. She probably got lost down there some point when she was a kid, and they adopted her. Do you think that's her origin story? My assumption was that she was originally one of the, actually was one of the Asia. I guess not all of the Asia had red hair. It was just most common. Uh, she she also seemed to be really old. Like she couldn't remember like how how old she was. Like she'd just been living there forever. I got the impression uh, from the descriptions of her that she was originally of the same, uh, you know, ethnic stock as Jim, that she was essentially native. Uh, And that would make a certain amount of sense to me that, you know, she's in Alaska, native tribe, somebody uh, gets lost in the mountains, the little kid gets found by these, by the little people. And it fits with her description. Uh, and that's how I took it. Um, so, you know, him saying, you know, I'm going to take her out of here made sense in that regard. But from a health standpoint, I was like, oh, God, that's that's dumb. Okay, um, everybody. All right. Um, folks. Wow, this has been this has been a, a great discussion, but we are we are at, at well over over an hour. So I'm going to bring it to. Final thoughts, Jeremiah. Final thoughts on the story. How how would you use this story in your in your game? Uh, I would certainly use the 
inner politics in Karak and the siege of Cirque uh, as inspirations for a D and D game. Uh, the, they they work uh, for political machinations and how to run a siege and things like that. Jeff. So something that strikes me about uh, this story that seems like something that could be usefully added or applied to a D&D game is the way in which Leaf is the ideal guy to go into the valley and explore and be doing stuff. You know, he go, when he goes, he already has the ring and he you know, has Dwaynu inside him. And so often in D&D, the player characters are just you know, whoever happens to show up. And there's a lot of really good reasons for that, you know, structurally and um, historically. But I feel like there's something that's kind of lacking in a lot of setups of D&D games where in the player characters aren't necessarily like the best possible fit for whatever they happen to be doing. And there's a lot of good reasons for that, but I feel like that's fertile ground to explore. You know, fit the the fifth edition player's handbook very very famously has that has that trinket table. Like it like it 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 sounds to me like it would be great if 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 the DM would would have all of his players roll on that trinket table and then and then design an adventure so that all of those random you know baubles or or whatever just just happen to be uh, relevant. Oh yeah, well, that's yeah. that's the usage. That but is see, that's the that's the that's the rub though, because either you're creating a situation where all of the player characters have the same thing going for them or else it's a situation where you know one player out of the group of five player characters has the unique tie to the adventure and then you know next week we go to the dwarf citadel and the dwarf gets to do something cool and the week after that we go to orc lands and there's an orc character who gets to do something cool and everybody else is you know the odd person out who doesn't fit into the adventure so i'm not sure what the way to maybe to maybe everyone else is. is is jim who who just dies jim dies yeah <laughs> jim dies and his last words are basically learn a lesson from my death jim is not a guy that i would consider a role model for a player character so, so jim is a henchman yeah yeah he's a sidekick uh but no i i think that the uh the actually uh, from a game mastering standpoint my my favorite has always been make one person feel special at the table each session if you can, rather than try and work out in a way that everybody gets sort of to feel special. It's easier to make one person feel special, mm-hmm. and then the next time you play, this person gets to feel special. and this So everybody gets their turn at feeling special. Yeah. You can, you can only focus on, on one person at a, at a, at a time. Um, even then, it's easier said than done. Yeah. Oh, it is. Completely agree. Listeners, if you have questions or comments for me, if you would like to be a guest on the show or contribute in some fashion, you can contact me through the Tome Show at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Make sure to put Appendix N in the subject line. Jeremiah, how can people find you on the web? Well, uh, I've got uh, two places that I would usually recommend to people. One is the uh, basics of the game.wordpress.com, uh, which is sort of my blog. Get the basics of the game uh, Tumblr and the basics of the game YouTube channel. 
which actually ends up being listed as a long series of numbers and such. But if you search basics of the the basics of the game on YouTube, you'll find me. Awesome sauce. And Jeff, how can people find you? I am still at jeffwick.com, J-E-F-F-W-I-K.com, where I blog. Um, most recently, I completed a 17-part series uh, talking about the history of Tolkien's elves retelling a small portion of the Silmarillion. All right, and Peter Jackson will be making that into a 17-part movie series, I'm sure. We can only hope that that won't happen. Yes. I, I, I'd watch it. So would I. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, I would too. Okay, yes. All right. I'd watch it. I would just be unhappy. <laughs> Next month, we will begin to delve into the stories of Conan the Barbarian from Robert E. Howard. We will be reading and talking about the Phoenix on the Sword, the Frost Giant's Daughter, and the God in the Bowl. From my research, these seem to be the earliest Conan stories that were written, although the latter two were not published until after Howard's death. Conan chronology and reading order is a tricky subject, as I've quickly found out. Uh, the month after that, we will be checking back with Edgar Rice Burroughs, who was still pumping out action-packed sword and planet fiction in 1932. We will be reading Pirates of Venus, the start of a new series starring a new hero. So let's see how he stacks up against John Carter and David Innes. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 12, Dwellers in the Mirage by A. Merritt. Thanks for listening.